0: Please remain standing as we read and hear and meditate on the Word of God. Join me if you grab your Bibles to First Peter chapter 1, and we're going to be reading verses 1 to 9. First Peter chapter 1, verses 1 to 9. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Please be seated. Let's pray again together. Join me as we go to God in response to his word. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we know that your word is powerful. And so, God, we pray that you would speak. We pray, God, that you would illumine our minds and our hearts so that we might behold what you have for us today from these verses. In your name we pray. Amen. Joy in the faith while suffering for the faith? Is that possible? To some, this heart posture seems almost an impossibility because suffering, as I'm sure you know, if you live long enough, you will know, it is so gut-wrenching can be a sort of sky-dimming experience that metaphorically knocks the wind out of you for days, if not months, if not years. But our passage today reminds us that actually joy in suffering is possible. Not because salvation is found in the strength that resides in me because I am so strong. But because salvation and hope is found in one outside of ourselves. Our sovereign and gracious God who is for our faith. That's a big idea today for taking notes, which I encourage you to. Joy in suffering is possible because our sovereign and gracious God is for our faith. In our passage this morning, God reminds us, first, your faith is precious to God. Point number two Because it is precious, he therefore refines it. And then point number three, the grand purpose is so that you would rest secure and lay hold of God's grace. This morning we continue in our series to the book of 1 Peter. It's a New Testament book. And uh, typically when Rocky preaches, I'm super excited about the series that he's going to get to after the Built for Discipleship series. I hear we're going to be Going through the book of Ruth, which is an amazing book, so I look forward to that. But when I'll when I preach, which you know might be around once a month or so, we'll be walking through the book of First Peter. Today we are in verses six to nine of chapter one, and this letter was written to suffering Christians who are going through suffering for their faith. Now, empire-wide suffering hadn't yet broken out under, underneath Nero, but we know that suffering was a very typical case, a typical occasion for those who claimed Jesus, for those who claimed that there was another king, the greatest king. In six, if you go ahead and look there, we know that these Christians were grieved by various trials. And if you go on to read the letter, you'll see also that they were suffering unjustly. We know that they were being mocked or ridiculed for living holy lives after their holy Jesus. But despite all of that, right, they, they, we find them in our passage still rejoicing in the hope of the gospel. Look there at verse 6. In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, their earthly lives, though for a little while you have been grieved by various trials. Why was there rejoicing? There was rejoicing because all of what God had done for them in Christ and the gospel. They had been given, granted, all by God's grace, salvation by the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. You look there, uh, in verses 3-5, to that's all what they're rejoicing in. New spiritual life, all by the greatness of God on account of His mercy. New spiritual life on account of the fact that Christ Himself had risen from the dead after He died on the cross for the sins of His people, bearing the wrath that they deserved. He gets up, right? There's a living hope there. For the Christian, there is an inheritance eternal and the hope of final salvation. And despite being grieved, we see them continuing to rejoice. You know, I'm glad that this, this verse here reflects the reality that in the Christian life, there is at the same time grieving yet rejoicing. Sorrow yet joy. I'm sure in your own lives you know that this is clear in real life. With various trials, of course, comes grief. Sometimes, again, heart-stopping grief, sorrow and disappointment. But, you know, despite the fact that our lives testify to this reality and the Bible speaks of this reality, that many Christians feel some sort of pressure to always be happy-clappy. right? But, again, feeling this way doesn't always match up with regular life. right? Our emotions, your emotions of sadness and sorrow... Remind us that oftentimes, not always, oftentimes, life is lived, the Christian life is often lived in the minor key, so to speak, because of trials and suffering. This is just a fact of life as we live in a sinful and broken world. And the Bible here, right, it should, it, 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 the way, when God speaks to us and as God speaks to us in the Word of God, the Bible helps us form our expectations for life. But yeah, oftentimes it's hard to embrace these expectations. If you're visiting with us exploring Christianity, perhaps the Bible talks about the origins of suffering and all of sin. And it actually says that suffering is a result of sin. What's important to know also is that there was a time when sin and suffering was not. In the very beginning... The Bible says God created all things and human beings to be in a perfect relationship with Him. Perfect relationship with each other. And even a relationship, a good relationship, perfect relationship with the world. But bad things, bad things came into the world when Adam and Eve tried to take the throne of God, who alone is king. Even though God, our loving God, had pledged to pledged to his people his very own loving self, his people didn't much care. They shrugged him off. Even though God had given them his wonderful self. Even though God, in all of his goodness, had given them a law, a good law. They looked at all those things in God himself and sinfully judged all of that to be shackles on their feet. So they opted to be gods unto themselves. They made up their own laws. They tried to determine what was right and wrong for themselves. This was the the great attempt, the great revolt to de-god God, as one has said. Because of this sin, they earned for themselves just judgment. And now chaos has entered into the world where we now are born in sin and actually choose to sin all people have gone astray, the Bible says. This, friends, is the origin of suffering. It is because of sin. All of the suffering that goes on in the world has come because people have rejected their God, the good creator over us. But here is the good news, right? That's the bad news. But here is the good news, which means gospel, right? Gospel means good news. The good news, friends, is that where man created the problem, God provides the solution. Where people sin, God acted all in His sovereign grace and His mercy to bring about salvation and to bring about the forgiveness of sinners. In a land darkened by sin and suffering because of sin, God was shining in the light of Christ, showing to all the way of salvation in Jesus Christ. Being a loving God, he sets about restoring what man had ruined. In Christ, God brings restoration in himself, right? Christ, he sends Jesus Christ, the eternal son, to take on flesh, to live the righteous life we certainly could not have. The death penalty that was upon us, Jesus takes that upon himself for the joy set before him on the cross. He dies on the cross. Three days later, he gets up from the dead, showing all to the universe that the death sentence no longer hangs over all those who repent of their sin and believe. And now the wonderful, marvelous promise is that anyone and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will, will be saved. Forgiven of their sin, adopted into his family, saved, justified. Justified. So we, therefore, go from judgment of eternal death to receiving eternal life by the grace of God. We go from no hope at all, not knowing the way of salvation, to knowing the way of salvation and having all the hope we can ever imagine in Christ into eternity. We go from a difficult life lived underneath our rule to now knowing the law of God in our hearts and then look forward, looking forward to the marvelous rule, perfected life in heaven under the rule of Jesus. And though we as Christians know the joy of salvation now, which we sing about, even if it is a little faint glimmer, we sing about it, we know about it, we look forward to it in its full at Christ's return. This is the Christian's hope. And again, if you're visiting with us as a non-Christian, let me ask you, are you tired? Aren't you tired of living in hope in yourself? The kingdom of man, so to speak. All of our disappointments, right, they are in some ways to be alarms going off that point to the fact that something is desperately wrong in the kingdom of man, and instead we need a hope outside of ourselves, found in the kingdom of heaven, and he who rules it, that is Jesus Christ. That's what Christians believe, that the only hope that could ever be is found in Christ the King, and this hope, friends, can be yours if you repent of your sins and believe on Jesus Christ. You will be forgiven of your sin. Your relationship with God? Restored. Relationship with man? Restored. Definitely not perfect, but you're working on it, right? We we learn how to forgive like Jesus. We learn how to love like Jesus. Your relationship with the ground, so to speak, in terms of our work, we work as unto the glory of God and not unto ourselves. This is the Christian's hope. So we think back to our passage. We know that our passage teaches us that joy and suffering is possible because our sovereign and gracious God is for our faith. This is point number one. Go ahead and write that down. Point number one, God finds the faith of his children precious. If you're suffering, isn't that encouraging? Look there in verse seven, right? You see that the faith of his children is more precious than gold. God finds the faith of his children precious. Now I know in some ways that's kind of obvious, right? If you're a parent or if you are in a position of leadership, that's kind of obvious in some ways, right? What good parent would not find their own children's love for the parent, their trust in the parent, their honor in the, wanting to honor the parent or their submission to the parent. Well, what parent wouldn't want to, wouldn't find that precious? Same with a beloved boss, for example, raising up the employees maybe to one day take over the company, and their employee loves the company. Right? What boss wouldn't want to fan into flame that? Same with the coach to the player. That parent, that boss, that coach would fan into flame the love, the trust, the honor, the submission, the reliance that they have on the one who is over them, leading them. Friends, so it goes with the father. Of course of course God finds the faith of his children precious when one becomes a christian right they turn away from living for themselves and they turn to God they begin to desire the love of Christ to honor Christ submission to Christ living for the glory of Jesus but you can also think about it this way God tends to what he plants God tends to what he plants we know that the Bible says that God is the one who planted the word in our hearts, and so he therefore brings about the faith, right? Faith is described as a gift. He's the one who plants it. Ephesians 2, 8-10 um, Resist, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not your own doing. It is a gift. It's freely given. That's the very nature of a gift of grace. It's freely given. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 3 No one can say Jesus is Lord except by doesn't say themselves or by working up their own intellect or whatever. It just says, except by the Spirit. So when we are born again by the Spirit, we believe. We exercise genuinely in our own selves. We exercise faith and trust. But get this, right? Not only does God plant, He tends to what He plants. He tends to what He plants. On a human level, we understand that we tend to what we plant. In my case, I bought this plant out of Ikea. It's sitting in my office. I like looking at it. And I tend to it. I watered it. I watered it this week. In fact, it was looking quite unhealthy, and so I had to water it. But even where I'm falling, right, sometimes I mess up, I might forget. God never does. He never does. Aren't you encouraged, Christian? This is evidence that God cares. To put it even a different way, He guards that which He gives. He guards that which He gives. And He does so by His sovereign might and power. Philippians 1 6, and I am sure of this that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus. He's gonna do it. Of course, the Bible also says that we are to work out our faith, right? No doubt there is human responsibility while God is sovereign, but we're emphasizing the sovereignty of God. First Peter one five, how will we reach final salvation? Go ahead and look there in our, in our passage. First Peter 1 Peter 1.5, we, we reach it by God's power. By God's power! Why are we to be encouraged? It's not because God has the power of a dog. It's because He's sovereign. and account of His sovereignty, we are guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed. So encouraging. Mako mentioned in his sermon that, of course, we're going to pay attention. We're going to invest or we're going to tend to the things that we invest in. Stock market, for example... Retirement accounts, well, we're going to want to cultivate it. We find it precious. Well, God reminds us here that the faith of his children is more precious than gold. His people's faith is cherished by God and cultivated in the kingdom of God. Now, of course, when we talk about faith, we're not talking about faith as a mere assent or belief to Christ. That is, That does not save, right? Knowing about God does not save merely. Satan and his minions have that kind of belief, right? They have good theology, yet they still oppose and plot against God, and they seek to devour his people. Faith certainly includes assent, but it's so much more than mere assent. It is a believing in, a trusting in, that leads one to not just know, but to embrace the lordship of the King. And to love the King and all that He is and all that He stands for. It's a faith in, a believing in, a trusting in, a throwing oneself at the King where we cherish Him for all that He is according to who He is, according to His Word. This kind of genuine faith, right, it presumes this bond of love from God the Father to His children and then His children towards Him. And it is... This bond that he finds precious as well. And so he's going to tend to it. He's going to cultivate it. How many of us in difficult times have wrongly thought, God doesn't care about me. He has, in fact, abandoned me. And you know how I know. I know it because I go through trials. And we may even say, if he cared for my faith, if he cared for and if he loved me, then I would never experience suffering. And the one in whom we once rejoiced in, we lodge complaints about. But in our, did you notice in our passage, Peter and these Christians are affirmed, actually, in God's love for them because they knew that God was tending to their faith in and through trials. It is because God is for your faith that he refines it. Because God is for your faith, Christian, he is determined to refine your faith. This is point number two, God refines your faith. This refining is described in our passage as a testing. If you look there at six and seven, in this you rejoice, right? In this salvation you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, You have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and honor and glory of the revelation of Jesus Christ. Look at it. It is a tested genuineness of your faith. So you see what God is after in our passage. It's actually right there in the grammar. God is after a testing and a refining. God aims to prove out your faith, so that it is purified. And in, this, in Scripture, this purification, this testing, is constantly described in the Bible as a refining process, kind of like how you refine a precious metal like gold or silver. The metal itself is placed into the fire so that it's melted down and that the impurities are burned away. And then so what's left is this uncontaminated, untainted, this true and genuine metal. Its quality is something that is pure, the tested genuineness. And what, God, what does God use to bring about this genuine faith? Friends, it is actually trials. Right In the mind of God, we know that there's probably billions, trillions of reasons for why we might go through something. Here, Peter is drawing out, James does as well, drawing out the fact that God uses trials to refine faith. You can think of Job in the Old Testament. He suffered greatly yet in the fire of affliction he was able to say Job 13:15 Though you slay me yet I will trust in you Praise God that Job is in the book is in the Bible God proves to everyone who has ever read Job ever heard the message of Job whoever will hear or read Job that God is worth glorying in no matter the circumstance We see that Job was a godly man. doesn't say that he suffered for any particular sin. But yet he suffered and he struggled. And at the end of the day, he trusted in God and was faithful. And what did he experience on the back end of suffering? It was suffering and the humiliation that came with it. But at the end, there was glory. God bestowed honor upon his head, blessing him with twice as much earthly possessions than he had before. Now, God did not promise this. To Job. He didn't say, look, when you suffer, I'm going to give this to you, and that's a guarantee. He also didn't earn them through his suffering. And certainly God has not promised this either. He's not promised us greater earthly blessings in the midst of our suffering or on account of faith. But what he has promised us is something greater than all of the world's riches, It's eternal glory in Jesus who suffered for us. And we know the peace of God now. That also is a promise. So you see there the immediate goal, right? It's in the grammar. It's in the passage. The immediate goal is the tested genuineness of your faith. But you look at the the ultimate goal there. Look at verse 7. You see the glory that comes after suffering, right? God's ultimate goal. That the testing may result in the praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Goal number one, we have the testing of our faith, purification process of it. Ultimate goal, the testing of our faith, the final outcome, the bestowal of glory from Christ himself in Christ himself. What is it like? I I think about it. I think, what what is it like to receive the glory from Jesus? It's a little nebulous, but the way I imagine it, if I had the freedom to do this, is to imagine what it's like when a king fights the final battle with his army and defeats the enemy once and for all. In that great victory and climax, the faithful soldiers, they praise the king because he alone is worthy. They know it. They all know it. He has led us into battle, and on account of his courage, we are courageous and his loyal, faithful Soldiers celebrate with shouts of glory and honor and praise to their leader, the king. But King Jesus is no hoarder of glory. The splendor and glory that is rightly his, that he possesses in himself, he shares with his soldiers into eternity. This is an encouragement for us as Christians to know without a shadow of a doubt that there is glory on the other side of our suffering. Just as Christ, our Savior, walked in the shadow of the cross to the cross to die on it, just as He walked the path of suffering, so we walk after Him. In in humiliation, He suffered at the hands of men and went down into the grave. But is that the story, is that the end of the story for the Christian? Well, just look to Jesus. Is that the end of the story for Jesus? Of course not. On the other side of his suffering, there was glory. And now for us, who are carabinered and tethered to Jesus, though he may go down into the grave, though he did go down into the grave, just as he got up, so we too, tethered to him, will go up. Or better yet, he has tethered himself to us, because we are the ones in need of help. And now for us who walk in His footsteps, whether we suffer persecution or suffer on account of living in this sinful world, because Christ rose in glory, we too rise in the same, where Christ has prepared for us glory into eternity. And so as we persevere in the faith, despite every ridicule, despite every blow to our bodies, despite every nail in our hands, should God call that, Give that to us. Call us to that. Despite a recent cancer diagnosis, our perseverance, your perseverance testifies. I will go down, but my Christ will raise me up. And as certain as God delivered His Christ, so He will deliver His Christians. Just as He delivered Christ, so He delivers all who are in Christ the Savior. He finds Christian your faith precious. So he is refining it, and he intends that you reach that glory and honor and praise that is his. It makes us ask the question, though are the things that God finds precious the things that we find precious? Right? Natural question Are the things that God's, God finds precious? The things that we find precious. If you're like me, there are times when we struggle, and let's be honest, and we are frankly unhappy and upset with the way that God refines our faith through trials. And frankly, as I know my own heart, the reason is that the things that I count most precious in my own life, they're not, simp- they're not frankly the things that God finds most precious in my life. The glory that I might try and win, that we might try and win or preserve is not the glory that Christ has already won and plans to bestow on me. It's like, it's like in these processes, right? God is at work with His loving care, tending to what He planted. And He knows exactly what the flower of faith, the beautiful flower of faith that all of His people have or will produce will look like. And so He works on it and He prunes he knows exactly what it's going to look like, but I'm grouchy, grouchy t- toward God when He rearranges the things that I find most precious. God, for example, He's at work putting Christ on the mantle of my heart in the midst of a trial, and when a distraction comes about that I'm tempted towards, uh, or, or and when I give in to that, it then obscures the things that are most valuable. That is Christ he then degrades, he downgrades those things, right? He, 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 or sometimes he removes them altogether. And in our, in our sin and stubbornness, sometimes we say, stop it. Stop touching my things. I like it the way it is. Don't touch my desires. Don't touch my equation for the happy life. Don't touch my ideal family that I've always dreamed about. Don't touch my definition for pleasure. please. What have you been trying to keep on the mantle of your hearts that you, frankly, don't want to let go of, that you don't want burned up in the purification process? It's that thing, as strange as it sounds, if you imagine the situation, if Jesus returned now, it's that thing you know that he would have to convince you to let go of. I'm always encouraged to think about how Melanie's father, my father in law, embraced God's purposes in placing Christ at the center, the mantle of his life, and downgraded or, frankly, removed everything else. From young, he came over from Hong Kong, high school graduate. His wife. Had, was Had stopped education at 12, but he himself, he came over having graduated high school, and over the years he built a very successful business. Maybe he had 10 to 12 jewelry stores here in Southern California, maybe Northern California, kind of um, not entirely sure about that part. But he had all of the money. He had the house on the water, or was actually near the water. They were too afraid, and they thought that the kids would fall into the water, so they said, no, nah, I'm not going to do that. It wasn't for money's sake that they didn't do that. He had the cars. He was a baller. He had the family. But despite going to church for decades, he did not have Christ. I remember uh, him going through the process of realizing it. 55 years old he receives a diagnosis stomach cancer but god was working on him by his grace and he began to change big time his priorities changed that's that's god downgrading all that he found Amazing and all that he had lived for. Eventually he has surgery. They remove 90 percent of his stomach. They tell him he has six months left to live to live. This is when he was 55 years old um in 2000, 2000 actually, 2001. But what, what was unique here is that in the trial and through the trial oh my goodness. By God's grace, he changed once again, and he began to be joyful, taking joy in different things. He was the most joyful I had ever seen him. He was like a second father to me. And I remember going to a birthday party over at his house. They were hosting it for one of my friends, Melanie's cousin there. And uh, this is after surgery, so post-surgery, 90% of his stomach removed. You could tell the man was withering away. And I go there, Didn't talk to anyone really but him. Spent the whole evening. I may be 23, 24 at this point in time. Just sit listening to him talk to me about his life. And he told me everything that he had placed on the mantle of his heart was meaningless. without christ the money the business meaningless and he just said matter of factly with such joy right not depression he knew where he was going at that time he had repented of his sins and believed christ is everything He just said it matter of fact jeremy he's talking to me you know as as kind of a you know 55 year old dude he just went on and on and on and i loved it i was learning so much from him. he said all that's meaningless Unless you have Jesus. And his life changed. Man, the brother, he was witnessing to his nurses. It was incredible. And he didn't say any of that with despair, but with joy. Why? Because God had given him Christ. And he had joy in the midst of suffering. How is that? It's because the trial had revealed to him Jesus. And so in spirit, he was able to say with Charles Spurgeon, I have learned... To kiss the wave that strikes me on the rock of ages. What is on the mantle of your heart, Christian? Confess it. Ask God to forgive you and repent. And then dwell on your eternal Christ and how He is far better than anything here in this temporary fallen and broken down world. Thinking about Peter and the letter, right? Peter himself knew that Christ was everything. Perhaps if you think about, you know, Peter's history, perhaps what was on Peter's mantle, so to speak, at the crucifixion was what? Was it Jesus? Or was it the praise of people? When a little servant girl called him out and said, aren't you with Jesus Weren't you, with the one, weren't you with that guy? Maybe it was reputation. Maybe it was safety. It was probably all of those things. But in the midst of it, God was working on him, downgrading or removing altogether those things that he placed on the mantle of his heart. And then by John chapter 20, as Jesus is reinstating Peter, right? What does, Peter, what does Jesus ask Peter? And what does Peter say to him? Peter, do you love me? imagine the remorse and the guilt that he had felt for abandoning his lord and savior and by the spirit he says i do three times he says that i do god was working on him downgrading removing altogether the things that he had placed on the mantle of heart so that he would see jesus and have him and his joy forevermore Peter here in 1 Peter. Now he's bold. Now he's hope filled and encouraging. He stands for his Christ, his Lord, in love and in honor. Same with these Christians who were rejoicing in trials. You look at their heart towards Christ in the midst of their suffering there in verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you haven't seen him. You love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. This is hugely instructive for us. Hugely instructive for us. Do you hear how their love for Jesus Christ burns strong despite earthly sufferings and earthly circumstances? Despite not seeing Him, they loved Him. Peter is not, again, praising them for blind faith. They believed in the real person of Jesus who really died and really got up from the dead. Peter was an eyewitness to Christ Christ. Peter knows that salvation is not dependent on whether one sees Jesus, but whether one casts themselves at Christ and His cross. But do you see how their love for Christ was undeterred by earthly circumstances? How is that possible again? How is that possible? As I mentioned last week, it is because what is gained in the gospel, as my father-in-law knew, It's because what is gained in the gospel far outweighs all that can be lost for the gospel. This brings us to point number three. Remember the big idea? God is for their faith. First, faith is precious to God. Second, therefore, he refines it and cultivates it. And then third is so that, grand purpose, we might lay hold of his grace. Point number three, God refines and cultivates our faith so that we might lay hold of his grace. You see that there in the last verse there, just look at 8, I'll read 8 and 9. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You see that gain in Christ, the outcome? Christ with His eternal glories, imperishable inheritance. They know the love of God from eternity past, present, into eternity future. Can you imagine that? That is the gain to know Christ past, present, and future. We talked about the foreknowledge of God. It's almost like God walks into an orphanage and He says, You are coming with Me And you know, present day, I know a number of you guys have adopted, you know, that there is this waiting period. Does God's love ever, ever wane in the midst of the waiting? Never. It burns strong all the way until his people come to repent of their sins and believe. And now that I'm a child of God, I look back and think, oh my goodness, God's foreknowledge found me and his steadfast love found me, though I didn't deserve it. We are foreknown by God. We are elected. We experience this. We are now adopted into his family. And then you think about the present. He opens the blind's eyes, causes us to see Jesus Christ, to repent of our sin, and see Jesus for all that he is. And then in future, eternal inheritance, imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. We are obtaining the salvation of our souls. In light of all that God is doing, has done, will do, therefore, their sufferings, what, what, how, does he, how are they described in verse 7? It's momentary, for a little while, for a little while. A great example of those who have lived... trusting in the hope of God, but yet experiencing this momentary affliction is found in 2 Corinthians 4, 17-18. He writes, For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Do you hear that comparison language, friends? Do you hear it? For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us what? It's not light. It's not momentary. It's weighty. It is eternal. The eternal weight of glory Beyond all comparison, you hear outcome, right? You hear gain, eternal weight of glory. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 10. Here's another marvelous example. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 33. These Christians were experiencing suffering. You look there, 1033, 1033, what was the suffering like it says sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated for you had compassion on those in prison right so you see what's going on there they're suffering they're having they're partnering with those in prison prison they had compassion on those in prison they are one in mind one in spirit of course but then it says there, I mean, look how it, look how they respond to persecution. It says, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. How is that possible? Say goodbye to the house. Goodbye to Mazda. Goodbye to Apple computer. Goodbye to all that we find valuable. Goodbye to everything, the riches. How is that? It is since you knew, they know that you yourselves had a better possession. An abiding one. That's gain. Knowing there's greatness on the other side of suffering. Here's the deal. Knowing Christ now and knowing what you will lay hold of Christ then. Right? Knowing Christ now and knowing what we will lay hold in Christ then frees us up to joyfully let go of the world now. What then is the fuel for perseverance? What then is fuel for perseverance? There's so many different things we could talk about in the ways in which God wants us to be encouraged, but I'm going to take some time to think now about the importance of our corporate gathering as fuel for perseverance in the Christian faith. You notice what Christ, what Peter was doing for them, right? In, in verse one, uh, sorry, in chapter one, the verses that we've already looked at. He was simply holding out the truth of who God is and what he has done in Jesus who God is, what He has done in Christ. Christians, you already know Christ. And I trust that there is a genuine love for Christ that certainly differs in terms of how it burns. Sometimes it burn, burns brightly. Sometimes we might think it's a little ember. But where we see those good and godly things, that love for Jesus here, we have the opportunity in this corporate gathering to fan into flame those little embers so that it would be a raging fire for God. So that we would know Christ more now and look forward to all that we will have in Christ then. So that we would be able to let go of the world now, should the Lord call us to. This is, this is the goal of our church family here. In fact, every church around the world that believes the Bible, preaches the Bible, this is the goal of their church gathering. Every Lord's Day, we gather according to His will to fan into flame our affection for Jesus, the Lord and Savior. Now, how is it that we do this? We do this through first the preaching of the Word of God. It is God's Word, after all, that is His chosen instrument to bring life to the dead and then to sanctify His people, to give life. And to cultivate that life. It's through His Word that the Spirit goes out in power and conforms us more into the image of His Son. And we, therefore, can grasp again hope. How else has God called us to fan into flame these affections for Him? Well, it's to also read the Bible. So we had a Scripture reading earlier that was super encouraging. At God's right hand there are pleasures forevermore. And even if we struggle to believe it, we could say, please, God, help me to believe that. We also pray according to the Bible, or we can pray the Bible, so to speak. And in praying to God, we approach our Father in heaven who loves us. We approach Him through the blood of Jesus and the power of the Spirit. And we pray. We praise Him based on who He is. We praise Him for being a loving God. As He is holy, we come before Him freely, confessing our sins to Him boldly, knowing that He will forgive us, because that's how gracious He is. And then since He calls us to ask of Him, so we do. We ask according to His will. We pray, in fact, that, God, You would be who You have said to You would be. Forgive us as You are a loving God, and do what You have promised. We also sing the Bible. So we preach the Bible, we read the Bible, We pray the Bible. We sing the Bible. We sing biblical truths. And friends, even though I'm relatively new here, you know, been here seven months or so, I'm encouraged by the singing. I find that our songs reflect the spectrum of the Christian experience. For example, there are songs that address the fact that we live sometimes life in the minor key. But yet there is hope in God. And then we can actually hear each other's voices It's not like the speakers are blasting over us where we can't hear anybody. Instead, we can actually hear each other sing. I come in when I'm discouraged. You come in when you're discouraged. And we hear each other singing the same truths that I sing. I hear you singing the same truths that I need to sing. And even when you're discouraged, you still come here and you try and sing the truths that I need to hear too when I will be discouraged in the faith. And as we do this, we preach in some ways. We sing the gospel truths to one another another so that the discouraged are encouraged. The weak are lifted up. And God is glorified in this gathering. And in doing these things, our affections by the Spirit of God, they are raised. And we grow to embrace the things of Christ now in eager anticipation of the things that will come in Christ then. And our rejoicing with joy now is a foretaste, right? What we experience here, what we experience here is a foretaste, a taste of heaven, an anticipation of the end, salvation in Jesus. That's what's going on with these Christians. Did you notice what their rejoicing is like, how it's described? They are rejoicing. It says there in our passage in verse 8. You look there, with a joy that is inexpressible, indescribable and filled with glory incredible that we could face the onslaughts of the world and suffer but then in the midst of it rejoice and experience joy a joy that reflects a foretaste of what will come then and we know it now we know the peace of god now the joy of god now but yet we will know it then beautiful incredible That the wonderful things that we can experience here is, while true, they are a faint expression of the glories of Jesus Christ in the heavenly places. What is the fuel for our perseverance? Thinking about the corporate gathering now because we scatter during the week. We come back and get refueled and then we go out again. What is the fuel for our perseverance as a church in terms of the church gathered, preach the word, to read the word, to pray the word, and to sing the word? Of course, the Spirit is working in all of that. To conclude here, what makes joy and suffering possible? It's knowing that your sovereign and gracious God is for your faith. He finds your faith, precious Christian. And because of that, he refines it in order that we might lay hold of his grace. Yes, we will suffer, whether persecution or suffering in general. But in the midst of it, we can hold firm in the storm and even press forward. Remembering God's great love for us in Jesus Christ, past, present, and future. God is who makes joy and suffering possible. He who has planned his people's salvation has accomplished it in Christ, and he will bring it to pass. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we do give you praise that you are a loving God, a gracious God. And to you belongs all the glory and honor and power. And so we give you great praise. We thank you, Lord, that you are our Father, we can trust you entirely. We can throw ourselves at your feet. We can bring our cares and concerns before you, knowing that you care for us as your word says, and knowing as first peter says that in due time you will lift us up reveal jesus to us more clearly we pray by your spirit move so that we might be anchored in christ who is our solid and firm anchor so that we might never be moved and god we pray for us as a church that you would help us give eyes how help us have eyes to see those who are suffering in this community that you might help us open our mouths and our hearts so that we might not simply consume, but instead we would want to provide for the needs of our people, just as you did. Our great provider and rescuer, redeemer and savior. In your name we pray. Amen.